0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm speaking today with uh, Gemma Deer about her book, a Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World, published by Bloomsbury Academic Press uh, in 2020. Gemma Deere is a researcher in residence at the uh, Rachel Carson Center for uh, Environment and Society in Munich. She's also host of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment podcast, Echocast. Hello, Gemma. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, first of all, I would like uh, to ask you this question about your background, because your book is so interesting as uh, it uh, combines both literature and environment.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I I have I guess a very uh, literature-focused background. Um, my bachelor, masters, and PhD were all technically in English literature, and kind of the environmental interest was initially something outside of that. Um, so this book actually grew out of my my uh, doctoral work and. I initially was just thinking about the notion of literary animism within um, some modernist writers. Um, And then I had that uh, perhaps inevitable or at least very common experience of um, losing all faith in the notion of my PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, Not very far in, I might add, about six months into my PhD. So I took a year out and wasn't even sure that I was going to come back and part of that reason for leaving was that I had this real strong uh worry about climate change and and the environment and it just felt like doing a literature PhD was you know pointless Mm -hmm. um and so I left and and just worked in a uh quote unquote normal job Mm -hmm. for a while (laughs) um And yeah, and then when I did finally make the decision to go back, I knew that I really had to bring these environmental concerns into it. And then that's how I ended up bringing these two things, this notion of animism in literature, and then also the the contemporary context of the Anthropocene and climate change together and kind of seeing how they talk to
0: each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, you kind of um, explained uh, how your interest uh, in uh, uh, animism uh, evolved, uh, Mm -hmm. and actually it is connected not only with your uh, original professional uh, interest in literature, but primarily uh, with your concern um, about um, the uh, current situation with climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the introduction, you explained that your book responds to the Anthropocene. Uh, Would you uh, specify this relation? Uh, would you also elaborate on uh, human narcissism, uh, which you extensively use in your book? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um,
1: so maybe f- first what I need to say is what animism is, just so that kind of we're, we're all on the same page. So um, animism in the, the sense that we commonly use it now was um, a word that we was used by the Victorian anthropologist E.B. Tyler to designate so-called primitive systems of thought that see life, personhood or agencies beyond the human. Um, And I'm arguing that in the context of climate change and the Anthropocene, this notion of agencies and life beyond the human or beyond the organically living starts to look quite logical um, rather than primitive. So seeing it as a way to, to understand climate change, but also all the kind of... You know, the more that we learn about the world, um, the more this kind of distinction between between humans and other beings, between living and non living, all these distinctions start to crumble. The closer we look, and and I'm arguing that the, the animist worldview can can help us to um, understand that concept. Um, and then, with regards to human narcissism, so this is a term that I take from. Um, a Freud essay in which he states that there have been three great blows to human narcissism. Um, And these are firstly the Copernican revolution, when humans realized that they were not the center of the universe secondly the darwinian revolution when humans realize that they're related to all other forms of life and then finally the third great blue blow to human narcissism um, freud says without so much of a hint of irony is the work of psychoanalysis i.e his own work um, in which humans uh, are forced to realise that they are not the agent of a conscious will, that there are unintentional and irrational forces that are um, directing um, directing our thoughts and, and actions in incalculable ways. Um, and I suggest that when we look at the history of these three great blows to human narcissism, what we see is not human narcissism kind of being taken down a peg or two, as we might expect, but rather what we have to recognize is the resilience of human narcissism where we there's this kind of double-think where we both um, know and don't know, or we know but we don't take them into account. So we continue to live as if we're the center of the universe, as if we're not dependent on other forms of life um, and as if we are agents of conscious, rational wills, even though we know at some level that this is not the case. Um, And so then I argue that, Uh, climate change and the Anthropocene comes as a fourth blow to human narcissism um, and it comes as a direct result of the failure to take into account the previous three blows. Um, And this kind of, it, it makes them all reverberate materially rather than just intellectually. So in the ongoing undoing of the material conditions upon which civilization depends, climate change shows us very forcefully that we're not the centre of the universe, either symbolically or materially, that we are very much dependent on other forms of life and that irrational and unintentional forces define our history and particularly they define our response to climate change to this moment. So we we kind of s- see this. So yeah, just to sum up, we, I see climate change as this fourth blow to human narcissism, to this um ideal ego that we have of being uh, some special central species and climate change comes to kind of deconstruct that deconstruct that and show us that it's not in fact the case
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I guess I have uh, some uh, generic question because I do you have some specific um, uh, questions about those works that you analyze in your book. So um, if uh, at the beginning of uh, this conversation you mentioned your concern right about um, climate change and that uh, for some time drew you away from your uh, PhD, uh, but when we think about this fourth blow um, that you defi- uh, deter- define define Um, in terms of literature. So what's the place of literature in this uh, fourth blow? How do we read literature in this context? Is is this a response uh, to this fourth blow or is it a consequence? So how do you position literature within this uh, context of the fourth blow?
1: Um, So it comes down again to... um, the, the notion of animism. So I, I think about the animism of language and literature. And so, um, and, and, and I guess this is kind of why I always studied literature for so many years that that I'm interested in um, the way that language and literary texts can be seen to have a certain life of their own. So, um, you know, words can take on different meanings depending on their context. Um, there's also, I I tried to think a little bit um in part of the book about what i call the animism of rhythm so the way that certain rhythms can kind of infect what we say and of course we can think about the fact that you know language really dictates our thoughts on a certain sense we 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 think within language and and it has a kind of life of its own within our own minds Um, and so um and and i also i guess. Uh, bring this out in the way that um, some of the texts that I look at certainly aren't about climate change or the Anthropocene. So I'm looking at quite classic texts. I'm looking at a couple of wolf novels, at a Franz Kafka story, at Alice in Wonderland. None of these are really about climate change, but I'm showing how kind of in the contemporary context, they transform themselves, they transform their their meanings. Mm -hmm. And something analogous I'm arguing, happens um with with uh, broader non nonverbal meanings. So the Anthropocene arrives and changes what it means to be human. So the I, I'm interested in a sense of reading and writing and text beyond verbal language so then we might think about the text of human beings the text of capitalism and how these are re-read reinterpreted by the event of climate change so things that we might once have interpreted as signs of um progress and prosperity such as air travel um now seem to be a kind of marker of our very destructive relationship with the earth. So it's this kind of, it's the way that texts, whether written texts or kind of in this more general sense, are subject to transformation. Um, And I suppose on on a micro level, the way that I'm kind of trying to become alert to all these non-human and non-living forces that have agency in the world i see those non-living and non-living uh, non-living and um non-human forces also at work within literary texts so that they can kind of they have a life of their own beyond any conscious intention or control of, of the author. They they become a kind of animate living thing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have um, two follow-up questions. Uh, one will be uh, on language. And there are a lot of references to Derrida in your book as well. And what mm-hmm. I noticed, you also provide a lot of um, notes on etymology of words. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, uh, is it uh, your gesture which is meant to say something Uh, so uh, I guess my question is well why do you include so many references to etymology and uh, another one uh, will be probably also connected to some extent to this one is about um, text so um, how do you understand text in these terms of um, animism so uh, but Mm -hmm. I I would really like you to start with uh, with the language question and with those yeah. references to Derrida as well.
1: Yeah. So my um, my interest in etymology is kind of really about. Uh, revealing the materiality of language and revealing words to have this kind of um, this history, this evolutionary history, we we can say in the same way that, that living beings have an evolutionary history. Um, and so by thinking about etymology, I'm drawing attention to the fact that, you know, we kind of read a text and we, we don't really see the words. We just kind of uh, absorb the meaning somehow. But by um, refocusing our Reading microscope, let's say, and actually noticing the strangeness of words on the page and the way that they give rise to meaning um can really enliven literature and I guess um that thinking about etymology is is one way to do that um and yeah, and I guess that also kind of answers at least part of the Derrida question in that he is very alert to. Um, these kind of deeper meanings as well, particularly in um, a text which I quote from White Mythology where he's talking about how um, metaphor is very kind of deeply ingrained in all language, but we act as if that's not the case, as if certain terms and concepts are purely non-metaphorical, as if they really refer directly to the thing. But actually, when you start to look a little closer, you realise that, uh, all words have a certain metaphoricity in that they are not the thing that then they're, they're they're naming or um referring to there's always this kind of um transfer or or carrying of meaning um and and just one more thing about etymology i suppose as well there's there's something about the um the words having this kind of secret life of their own so I can perhaps give an example from the book. Um, I look at the etymology of the name of Charles Darwin um, and his, his surname Darwin comes from um, Old English. The beginning comes from this word dior which uh, meant beast or animal of any kind and win mean, meant friend or kinsman while his first name charles comes from the old norse call meaning man so his name literally translates as man animal kin or mm-hmm. man beast friend which mm-hmm. um i then suggest is an etymology that kind of plays out in in his in his life's work um presumably unconsciously who knows maybe he looked it up himself but you know the idea that this kind of uh the theory of evolution already had his name on it in a very literal sense um so yeah and i just uh, for me there's just something kind of magical and and very fascinating about that and that's it's really Kind of just how I instinctively read. I'm always like looking deeply into the words, and 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 I'm often surprised of about the things that um, grow out of them. Um, and sorry, please repeat about the, question. the uh,
0: about the text. Um, so I guess it. Is- can somehow be connected with uh, how you understand language in general on this very uh, um, uh, basic uh, basic, fundamental level and in this connection I would like to mention the cover of the book which is beautiful and I think that it's such a wonderful reference uh, to um, the main concept <laughs> that you analyze mm-hmm. in this book um, uh, you uh, mention also the etymology of the word radical mm-hmm. and And uh, you take it back to the word root, uh, I believe, Mm -hmm. and there is this wonderful picture of the roots, almost like, but they are on the surface; they are not under the surface; they are on the Mm -hmm. surface. So, which Mm -hmm. is um, a wonderful, probably allusion uh, to what you uh, Mm -hmm. analyze in your book. So, the text.
1: Um, sorry, what about the text? Yeah,
0: the text. uh, How you? uh, How does text uh, function? in the Anthropocene. How do you read the text? How can we, because uh, what you uh, describe about language and text in general, uh, for me resonates with some uh, postmodernist concepts as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess, I mean, this is again, another reason why uh, Derrida is so important in this work is, what he refers to as the the generalized notion of of text or trace um and kind of realizing that uh, everything is textual in a certain sense and especially when we start to think about the anthropocene which is quite literally um marks or traces um into the planet marks that will remain in the geological record um, and that we are reading and interpreting and so that's kind of one way we see a generalized notion of text it's also of course um, true when we think of um, organic life this is uh, at bottom text or code in in dna Um, and actually the the notion of the evolution of language comes before the notion of the evolution of um, organic life and, and uh, Darwin himself kind of found it quite strange how similar the two forms of evolution are and then kind of, you know, fast forward into the 20th century and the, the, the realisation of the genome kind of uh, makes that similarity make sense um, in that they are both textual and um, So yeah, it's just about kind of seeing this more generalized notion of text in in the world at large, in um, effects, it, it also comes down to the notion of biosemiotics, which is the way in which all living beings from a cellular level um, right up to the macroscopic level all make use of a certain semiotics, i.e. they interpret signs, they give meanings to them. And so when we see the world in this way with this generalized notion of text, um, we uh It kind of shows that the way that literary texts or uh, even non-fiction texts, the way that they produce meaning is not something um, distinctively uh, other, it's rather just um, a different species of the same genus of textuality, let's say. We took
0: it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to think about how we engage with uh, texts, and of course, the way we engage with texts today uh, differs from the way we engaged with texts, let's say, two hundred years ago, and not only because of some technological advancements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, w- would you comment a little bit on this uh, difference? Because um, in 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 the introduction part you also mention uh how writing and reading also contribute to this uh change and how writing and reading also respond to um the climate change as well
1: mm-hmm. um so i guess this kind of uh touches a little bit on um this idea, uh, this phrase that I use of Anthropocene reading, which I say can be um, read in three different ways. So, first of all, Anthropocene reading would be the reading of the Anthropocene, i.e., the noticing of the geological traces um, that we are leaving in the wo- in the earth. The second form of Anthropocene reading would be reading verbal texts, reading human texts in a way which is appropriate to or conscious of the current context. Um, And so this is following on a little bit on the work of people like Tim Clark, who recognize that, you know, we can't... um, Because reading happens within the context of mm, what it means to be a human being, what it means to have agency, we can't read uh, the same text that we used to 100 years ago or whatever in the same way. We have to read in a way that understands this uh, transformed or mutated relation that we have to the world around us. Um, And... The fact that uh, climate change, it really is an effect of leaving traces into the earth, it's its an effect of a certain form of writing, is also kind of transforming that notion of reading. Um, and then the third form of Anthropocene reading um, is... I suggest kind of involving reading that phrase the other way. So um, seeing the Anthropocene as the thing doing the reading, i.e. the Anthropocene is reading us. It is reinterpreting what we are, as um, the human species.
0: Yeah, I really like how this uh, Anthropocene uh, reading brings texts back from the past to the present, and it also opens up new perspectives on how we can read the texts. <clears throat> um, I would like to uh, talk a little bit those specific texts that you analyze in your book, and I'm uh, particularly intrigued by your reading of Virginia Woolf's works. Uh, would mm-hmm. you talk about how uh, her works respond to your main claims? How you yeah, read, sure. uh, yeah how you read Virginia Woolf from this Andrew, uh, anthropocene perspective
1: yeah. Um, so Virginia Woolf appears in the chapter on which I focus on the Copernican revolution. So the book is, is organized about those around those three blows to human narcissism that we talked about. So the Copernican, Darwinian and Freudian revolutions, and there's a chapter for each of them. So um, Woolf appears uh, alongside the Copernican revolution, which um, I identify as having two distinct aspects. In the way that it uh, deals its blow to human narcissism, so these are decentering, so showing that the humans are n- that humans are no longer the center of the universe, but also rescaling. So when we realised that the the Earth was not the center of the universe, it actually revealed that the universe was also much vaster than we had previously supposed. Um, And so this revolution kind of disturbs the place and prominence of humans, both materially and symbolically within the universe. And um, I find that Wolf's work, I'm particularly looking at two of her novels, um, To the Lighthouse and The Waves. And in these two novels, I really see her as a animistic and post-Copernican writer particularly in these senses so she's very concerned with non-human agencies but also particularly she's concerned with um these movements of decentering and rescaling so kind of um being attentive to the non-human forces of course very famously in to the lighthouse there's that um Middle section of the book, time passes in which uh, the house is left to the forces of um, entropy and decay, and and of course there's, there, there are no or almost no human characters within um, that whole section. So you see very much that kind of decentering of the human. She's asking kind of what what might narrative be without humans there. Um, and in terms of rescaling, just to give a couple of examples, um, she's also very she's concerned with the astronomical, but she's also concerned with the um, with the minute, with the nano kind of with the revelations um, that were contemporary at the time of quantum physics. And so kind of with these both by representing kind of images from both ends of the scale, um, we sort of zoom away from the human characters, um, or see them within this much vaster and, and tinier hole. So she's really kind of at- attentive to um, those scales beyond the human.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, are there uh, different manifestations, let's say, of this uh, reading, uh, when we compare, um, compare for example, um, to the lighthouse and the waves, or uh, there are more similarities than differences?
1: Um, well, they're, they're obviously two very unique texts, but I think the reason why I put them together is because of the way that even though they they are written in very different ways, they do enact similar things. So um, the Waves 2 has the interludes in which we don't see the human characters, um, and, it, and it too, again, has these same... Uh, interest in in the rescaling mm-hmm. um, and but i guess as well kind of what is um what is particular about wolf's writing that i want to bring out and which i think these texts um do do particular well particularly well um is her attunement to the rhythm of language um, and so she says that the rhythm of writing is very profound and that it goes far deeper than words. Um, she calls it uh, the most primitive of instincts. Um, and she says that it incites something wild within us. And so it's as if she's aware that when she's writing um, and the rhythm of language, which she sees as this wild force that is outside of her, is to an extent dictating what she says um and so when we're reading her i think i mean of course we always have the license to do this but perhaps more than ever we have the license to let the language do things that you know she didn't or couldn't have intended
0: Uh, And uh, uh, in one of the chapters you read, uh, as you already mentioned, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, uh, as well as uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, in uh, uh, other sections. So would you guide us through your reading approach here? And also, would you like um, to mention what uh, you um, wanted to elicit from these texts by putting them into the context of animism? Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Um, So the Alice in Wonderland books come in the uh, third chapter, which is the Darwinian chapter. So um, this is uh, thinking about the double force of the Darwinian blow. So firstly, that there's no rigorous distinction between human beings and other animals. Um, And secondly, that complexity can be produced without intentional agency. Um, So, you know, rather than seeing all of life as a creation of God, we see it as the product of this mindless process of, of evolution. Um, and in this chapter, I, I'm also really concerned with thinking about how The notion of the life of language might be more than metaphorical. So not only does the uh, automatoric or self-driven life of living beings help us to think the life of language, but also the strange and irrepressible life of language beyond any conscious, intentional, authorial control can also help us to think the otherness of non-human animals. Um, and then where the, so I, I look at two other two other uh, texts first in this chapter, Helen MacDonald's H is for Hawk and Nicholas Royal's quilt. And I'm thinking about the representation of animals and the kind of the necessity of metaphor in those two texts. And then the Alice books come in um, really for, as a way or alongside my engagement with um, the Meat industry within um, global capitalism. So the ways in which the particular forms of alienation around um, industrialized meat production, where kind of um, meat just sort of becomes this uh, plastic packaged product, which you know entirely conceals the pain and the suffering and the environmental degradation that goes into its production. Um and I, I'm looking at the, the Alice books in this context, um, and so there's one passage that I read in which um Alice uh sees the the cook who has this um baby who is screaming and the cook is like throwing pots and pans at the baby and Alice is like, I need to save this this little baby the murder to leave it behind and then she's carrying the the baby along in her arms and it and it starts to turn into a pig um and you know she says oh it it does have a very turn up nose and (laughs) that sounded a bit more like a grunt than a cry and then during this passage she stops referring to it as a he and she starts referring to it as an it and by the end when she says there's no mistake about it, this is neither more nor less than a pig, she says it would be absurd to carry it further. So we've gone from it would be murder to leave it behind to it would be absurd to carry it any further um, in this transition from baby, human animal, to pig, pork. Um, And, you know, the notion of it as food is kind of, uh, uh, highlighted from the outset in that we've come from the kitchen we've got the cook throwing the the food at it um, and so I show kind of how this, this scene really encapsulates the way in which um, human beings really see themselves as distinct from other animals particularly the kind of animals that they eat as food which they can really easily um, objectify um, and so and 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 then this kind of shows, uh, I mean, of course, there are many forms of animism within the Alice books, but this kind of um, transformation and this kind of real resonance that it seemed to have for the current context, because as we know, meat and dairy production are uh, one of the worst forms of um, greenhouse gas emissions, producing a lot of methane, but also with a lot more Uh, environmental effects in terms of um, the antibiotics that industrialised farm animals are fed on a daily basis, the waste slurry that um, comes out and pollutes water systems, all of these kind of um, really quite devastating environmental effects. And suddenly there's this scene in Alice in Wonderland, this children's book, that kind of problematizes our objectification and instrumentalization of animals. And, you know, the in terms of kind of the more general animism of literature, you know, I read this book as a child and certainly didn't see it like that. It was just like, oh, the baby turns into a pig. And then there's this kind of whole, like, disorienting, like, vortex feeling where... You read it today and it seems to have this resonance and this intensity of meaning that, you know, was obviously always latently there, but Mm -hmm. it takes a certain context in order to bring it out, to bring Mm -hmm. it to life.
0: And maybe just a few words about uh, Shakespeare. Ah, yes. Um,
1: And so then um, Hamlet appears in the final chapter, which focuses on the Freudian um, revolution, um, in which... Uh, And this revolution is kind of calling into question the notion of pure or intentional human agency in individual, linguistic, social and global scales. Um, And I'm arguing that an apprehension of this is key to understanding the human responses or lack thereof to global warming. Um, And so... um, In this, I'm looking at Hamlet alongside Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle, um, which is the famous text in which he um, puts forth his theory of the death drive and the compulsion to repeat. And um, for people who haven't read the text, this is also the text in which he tells the story about um, a little boy who is in fact his grandson, Um, he doesn't say it's his grandson, but it is, who plays a game with um, a spool of cotton, the Fort Dar game, the kind of throwing it away and and pulling it back. Um, And uh, through putting this, the storytelling that Freud does within this essay, alongside Hamlet, which was um, a very important play for Freud, he... Uh, frequently references it. He um, he gives a reading of it showing how um, it's kind of, or, or in his reading, it's all about uh, these repressed Oedipal instincts. So he thinks Hamlet is in love with his mother and, and um, wants to kill his father. And he says that he has really kind of, he's the one who's finally understood Hamlet after um, the centuries have gone by. Um, but I show how there seems to be within Freud's telling of his story of his grandson he seems to be echoing or retelling the story of Hamlet and we have all these kind of subtle um, theatrical metaphors coming in and then there's also this moment in which he um, writes these four o's Uh, so he kind of says that because His grandson aunts can't actually um, say the word fort, so the German for gone, that he just says ooh, 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 and he writes it as four O's. And these four O's seem to echo or mimic um, Hamlet's uh, last words before he dies. So, um, right at the very end in the original edition of Shakespeare, Hamlet's last words are, oh, 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 and then he dies. And then, uh, well, no, sorry. First he says the rest is silence, and then there's these four O's. So it's kind of his his death throes. And I'm basically looking at the way in which it seems that Hamlet has kind of insinuated itself into... Freud's telling of um, the story of his grandson and through that I'm showing again how language has this kind of life of its own so um, consciously or unconsciously it can make us think certain things it can uh, change the way that we think and act.
0: Mm -hmm. So the second part of the title of your book is Reading for the End of the World. Is this Mm -hmm. a gesture towards the apocalyptic reading or there is some hope?
1: Um, Yeah, a bit of both. Um, So this again comes uh, from my interest in etymology. Um, So the subtitle can be understood in two ways. So it can be, of course, read in a very apocalyptic vein um, as referring to the kind of reading that might be appropriate to this time of catastrophic climate change, a reading for the end of the world. Um, But it can also be read in an affirmative tone. So the word world um, comes from the old Danish wereld, Meaning literally man age. So that where is is the same where that's in werewolf, for instance, and eld meaning age. Um, and so, and then if we take the the word for uh in the sense of in defense or support of, in favor of, so being for something, um, this would then be reading for that is for, that is in favor of the end of the age of man, the end of the were eld. And I'm not saying there that I think that humans should go extinct, um, but rather trying to recognize that um, the future of human life, in fact, depends upon the end of a world in which human beings narcissistically act as if they're separable from. Um, or independent of other living things. And so the end of the were-eld would be the beginning of a less destructive or pathological relationship between humans and the other forms of life with which we share the planet. And so in the same way that the, I guess the subtitle has this double tenor, I hope as well that that double tenor goes throughout the book and, and that there is this, um, this sense of hope um alongside the recognition of the direness of our situation
0: uh, yeah i'm i'm really fascinated how you um put this interest um in uh, etymology uh in many many levels of your book uh in the texts in your personal writing in the title of the books. This is, this is just a very um, astounding gesture, I would say, to construct, to, in, in some sense, your book is constructed uh, in this way. Um, so wh- what is your current project? Is it in, well, I would, I would assume that uh, you um, continue working towards this uh, uh, overlap between literature and uh, environment? Yeah,
1: sure. So I, I'm I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. Um, I'm working on a book on um, extinction, um, and so I'm thinking about broadening the notion of extinction beyond the um, the narrow sense of biological extinction and thinking about how it's at work in other domains. And I guess this again uh, comes down to an etymological interest in that extinction comes from extinguishing this notion of kind of quenching um, fire. And so, you know, I'm kind of thinking beyond or before species extinction and and how these broader um, and other terms of extinction might throw light on our current predicament. Um, And again, thinking through um, different literary texts. Um, And I've also just started um, working on uh, fungi quite seriously and thinking about how, um, well, what I call mycomorphism, how uh, fungi in certain ways can disrupt or change the way that we think. Um, and I think that they're really uh, fruitful for thinking this current moment with the um, the way that they kind of, you know, emerge out of the ground, um, reliant on all these individual invisible and um, underground connections that we can't see um, and then they kind of fruit and give this very strange or uncanny thing and and I think it's um, really useful for thinking the current moment the kind of new forms of interconnection that we're that we're coming to terms with.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, is this your, your first book
1: Yes, it is my first book.
0: Yeah, well, then congratulations. Congratulations on this first book. Uh, and um, I, I I look forward to uh, reading your new books. Um, your um, approach is fascinating. And um, uh, thank you for, for this research. And thank you for this book, Radical Animism, that uh, makes us again aware of uh, uh, human narcissism on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, this book is wonderfully written and uh, it has its own code. It has its code on the the textual level, it has its code even on the uh, title level. So congratulations, uh, Gemma, and uh, mm, good luck on your uh, current and future projects as well. Thank you so much for having me. Today I spoke with Gemma Deere about her book Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World, published by Bloomsbury Academic Press in 2020. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.